Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you for the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning with, uh, with, with this body of believers. We all share the same heart of love for you and uh, for each other. And I thank you for the unity that we have here. It's uh, the work of your Holy Spirit. I'm so grateful for the constant evidence I see of the work of your spirit in the lives of of my fellow believers here and in my own life, and I thank you for it. Thank you that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us at your right hand, and that when we go through such struggles that we're all going through, or different struggles here, I don't think there's anyone here that isn't going through something, Uh, Lord... uh, Help us to just constantly remember we have a great high priest who uh, sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and he is seeing us through. He is strengthening us through his prayers and through the Spirit. And now I ask that you would strengthen me and all of us and give us uh, good ears to hear what you have to say to us today through your word. I pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like for you to turn to Galatians 2. And I think I thought of this passage quite a bit because I was thinking of the theme of false teaching and how Paul was telling Timothy to combat it. And I was thinking of times at which Paul himself had been called upon to do that. I was even thinking of some times in my own life when I've been called upon to do that. I remember once... uh, writing a blog article that publicly confronted some false teaching in our community. And uh, the the reaction I got to that uh, was pretty negative. Um, And I reminded uh, one or two of the people that reacted so negatively to it that this passage is in the Bible. Paul's example is in the Bible that sometimes when there's public Error, it must be publicly confronted. And uh, even if it's somebody you know and love really well, as in this case. So I'd like to read uh, Galatians 2 for the account of this. And it's important that we read all of verses 1 through 14, although my focus is going to be verses 11 through 14. And the reason this is important to do that is because we find here a description of what was Paul's second visit to Jerusalem and of a private meeting that he had there with Peter, John, and James who were known to be pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And he speaks of how those three prominent apostles agreed that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised in order to be Christians. Basically, there was there were some Jewish false teachers that were saying, basically, you had to be a Jew first to be a Christian. You had to be sac- uh, circumcised. And they were making this then a work that you had to do to be saved. And they were undermining the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. And uh, these three apostles wholeheartedly affirmed Paul's gospel preaching and gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, no, you do not have to be circumcised. And then uh, that description of that meeting provides the key background information as we read uh, then Paul's description of this momentous visit by Peter to Antioch. 
at which time Peter failed to live up to what he had previously professed. Uh, and so we'll see some of this as we begin in verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And that's important because Titus was a Gentile. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So there was this, there were already people trying to say that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian and they were undermining the gospel in the process and Paul saying, but none of the leaders there in Jerusalem if, if, this, if, if that were really true, they would have demanded that Titus be circumcised, and they didn't. Regardless, Paul wasn't going to submit to any such nonsense, right? He says, but from those who seem to be something, tinge of sarcasm here perhaps, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God knows personal or, or shows personal favoritism to no man. He said, there were some people that seemed very prominent there, uh, but in the end, it, it doesn't make any difference whether they're prominent with people or not, right? <laughs> uh, he's setting a tone here that no matter what any man says, he's going to follow the true gospel and do what God says. But he cares what certain men say. He cares what the apostles in particular say, his fellow apostles. And so he says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised has been, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's just another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, there's this meeting in which Peter was there. Peter had said, I agree completely wholeheartedly with the way that Paul's conducting his ministry and preaching the gospel. It's the same gospel me and James and the other apostles are preaching. He says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. That's a shocker to read that line after what we just read. Because he was to be blamed. For certain men came from James, uh, for rather before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Yikes. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that's the issue. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? That's another way of saying, 
Peter, you hypocrite. Right? And so that gives us the text. And I think it's important to understand that background, but also some more of the historical setting here. So I'm going to spend a few more minutes placing the passage in its historical context even more than we've already done. Um, this event in Antioch would have been after Paul's first missionary journey and before the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts 15. That's the setting here. So I'm going to take a look, first of all, at the end of Acts 14 to get, or at least to start to get the picture here. Uh, we're told in Acts 14, verses 26 through 28, that from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas have finished the first missionary journey, and they're staying for a while in their home church. Remember, they were sent out initially from Antioch on that missionary journey. They're staying there. They've reported everything that's happened, and they're hanging out there for a while. We're told a long time. It would have been during this long time at Antioch that Peter would have made his visit there. And this means that this event would have occurred in the midst of the toxic environment created by certain Jewish heretics who were insisting that Gentiles had to become Jews to be Christians, as we've seen. A situation which in turn led to the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts 15. So we've seen, we've got in our head the history leading up to this, all kinds of Gentiles are coming to the faith. Everybody in Antioch is really excited about it. There are a certain group of professing Jewish believers who don't like what's happening because they're skipping becoming Jews first. They're skipping circumcision. They're, and they, they don't like that. And so it's, 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 there's this big debate about it. Well, if we fast forward to after this meeting with with Peter in Antioch, we can we can see what happened, how this got dealt with later. And certain men, we're told in Acts 15, 1 through 4, came down from Judea, that would have been to Antioch, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the kind of thing that's going on in Antioch as as Paul's writing Galatians and uh, and it's uh, the kind of thing going on in Galatia. They're not just coming to Antioch. They're going everywhere. They're going to the churches Paul and Barnabas have planted, saying this, undermining the gospel that Paul had preached to them. That's why he wrote Galatians. And so he reminds them, the Galatians, of this previous event with Peter. Uh, he reminds them that the apostles, including Peter, had agreed that they were teaching the true gospel and so forth. But it, was still, it went on for some time. As you can see in Acts 15.1, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They shouldn't have to. Remember, he'd already met with them and everything was fine. Uh, they got to meet about this again. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Now, that sets the stage for the council that they're going to have, the first 
church council in history. So this is the setting for the passage before us. There, there were these Jewish heretics to whom scholars have often referred as Judaizers because of their stress on the importance of becoming Jews in order to be saved. And these heretics were coming to Antioch from Judea and stirring up trouble. And during this time, Peter had also come to Antioch for a visit, but as we'll see, he failed to take the strong stand against these Judaizers that he had taken before in his support of the gospel. That's where we pick up the story in Galatians, in the midst of all of this. We'll make our way through this passage verse by verse, and we can learn, hopefully, from this sad occurrence in the life of the early church, and particularly in the life of Peter. We're going to see what we can learn from what happened to Peter, how Paul addressed it, and maybe how we should behave in similar circumstances. In verse 11 we read, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Here we're, again, immediately taken aback by what are pretty unexpected words from Paul. We've no sooner seen in the preceding context that Peter and Paul were on the same page about the gospel and the importance of their respective ministries when we're suddenly told of Paul's opposition to Peter in Antioch. Where did that come from? Well, he's going to go on to explain it. Uh, we'll see what happened in the following verses. But we first want to take a look at the very strong description of Paul's confrontation of Peter, in which he tells us at least two things. Uh, first, Paul tells us how he confronted Peter. He tells us how he confronted Peter. He says, I withstood him to his face. The Greek verb translated withstood here in the New King James Version could also be translated as I opposed or I resisted him to his face. It's interesting to me that this same word is later used by Peter uh, to describe our stance uh, toward the devil and his workings. He says this in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. That's the same word that Paul used for what he did with Peter. He resisted him. He says about the devil later, Peter says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Well, on this previous occasion to writing this letter, Paul had had to resist Peter and remain steadfast in the faith. At any rate, this is a pretty strong word that was used in this context, isn't it? He uses the word to describe his opposition to Peter. And this opposition wasn't in the form of just talking behind Peter's back and telling others about how wrong he thought Peter was. No, Paul, Paul says he opposed Peter to his face. If opposition was called for at all, it was to be done both in person and out in the open. In fact, as we shall see when we get to verse 14, Paul didn't just confront Peter to his face. He did it very publicly. So that's the first thing. He tells us how he confronted him. Second, Paul introduces the reason why he confronted Peter. 
and he goes on to elaborate why he was to be blamed, but he says that he confronted Peter, Peter rather, because he was to be blamed. Peter had done something wrong for which he was guilty. He had sinned in some way. Right? The ESV and the New American Standards say that Peter stood condemned because they're trying to capture Paul's emphasis on the, pack, on the fact here that Peter was already condemned by his own actions. He stood condemned. As J.B. Lightfoot says in his excellent commentary on this text, his conduct carried its own condemnation with it. The condemnation is not the verdict of the bystanders, but the verdict of the act itself. In other words, when Paul said that Peter was guilty, he was merely stating the obvious, what should have been obvious to everyone. This isn't something that he should have had to argue about and prove. Right? It wasn't some fine point of hair-splitting theology we're talking about here. It was an obvious discretion of some kind in which Peter clearly stood condemned. That's the kind of thing he has in mind here. So, um, it was so plain, no other conclusion could possibly be drawn but that he was guilty. If I may paraphrase, uh, Paul is saying, I oppose Peter strongly to his face because he was so obviously wrong that no other course of action was necessary. That's the implication of what he's saying here. But what on earth could Peter have done that would have been so clearly wrong that it required such strong opposition that Paul felt it necessary to confront it on the spot and out in front of everyone. Um, it had to be something really bad, right? Well, it was. In the next few verses, we'll see that Peter had indeed done something remarkably bad and that he knew full well that it was wrong when he did it. That is Paul's perspective on it. His spirit-inspired perspective on it. And uh, this brings us to the next verse. For, he says, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these men who at least claimed to be from James... Peter withdrew himself, and he separated himself from them, fearing those who are of the circumcision. Now, obviously in this context, those of the circumcision were these Judaizers, these professing Jewish believers who said you had to be circumcised to be saved. He's calling the, them those of the circumcision. Um, he's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are they all about? Circumcision. Going to have to keep you waiting for a few minutes longer before I address why Peter, uh, or why what he did was so bad, uh, because I think we need to understand first that these Jewish heretics were not really representing James's point of view. He says, before certain men came from James, I think he's talking about the claim they're making. I don't think he really believes they came from James. He's just stating the facts that people understand there, that, they're, that they say they came from James, right? Um, we know that they didn't really 
represent James's position. They may have known James. Maybe James did send some of them out, uh, but not to say what they were saying, because we know for a fact that James didn't agree with it. Uh, we know this because in the preceding context, Paul's just told us that James was one of the apostles at Jerusalem who had agreed with his understanding and preaching of the gospel, who had agreed that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. He had disagreed with these Judaizers. He'd given Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And although we see that Peter wavered, we have no reason to think that James ever did. In fact, it becomes James is probably the most prominent apostle to speak at the council in Acts 15 later. He's the guy that comes up with the big solution to the problem. Uh, so, I, don't, I think given what he's already told us, we should be suspicious of whether or not they were really representing James's point of view. But, as I said, later at the Jerusalem Council, it's pretty clear that James disagrees with them. I'll read, I'll read uh, from Acts 15, 22 to 25. Now, this happens later on, but it shows that James thought later what he thought before. And there's no reason to think he ever thought anything else, right? We're told in Acts 15, 22 that it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who have the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. And who's the we here? The apostles and elders in Jerusalem, among whom is James. James is saying this too. I never gave that commandment. I never said that. So we know when we read here in Galatians that there are people coming from James, they're not really representing James and what he really thinks if they did come from him, right? And then they say it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you by our beloved Barnabas and Paul, backing Barnabas and Paul all the way again, like they had done in the beginning. So these Jewish heretics did arise from within the churches in Judea. They make it clear that that's the case in that letter. But they did not represent the views of the leaders in Jerusalem, whatever they claimed. And sadly, very often false teachers do come from within the community of professing believers. We've seen this in our study of 1 Timothy, which, remember, is written to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. And remember the prophecy that Paul had made that was already coming true in Ephesus, which was the reason he had to leave Timothy there, that from among them false teachers would arise? He had said this in Acts 20, 28 through 30. Paul had said to the elders from Ephesus, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up. From among yourselves, being the elders there that he's talking to, speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after themselves. All too often, people think of heresy as coming from without the church community rather than from within. 
but we have to constantly remember that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11. Therefore, he says, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They're not true ministers of righteousness, obviously, just like the devil's not a true angel of light. Our, our adversary, the devil, is like a spy who seeks to infiltrate our ranks and destroy the church from within. And he does it through false teachers who distort the truth, who claim to be true believers, but are not. That's what was going on here. Anyway, let's get back to poor old Peter, uh, who has tripped up once again. Uh, in, in this verse, Paul begins to explain what Peter had done uh, was bad. He tells us that certain men came, many, he says, were of the circumcision, who we know falsely claimed to represent James's point of view and said that the Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul tells us that after these men came, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and separated himself from them because he feared these Judaizers. The contrast here in this chapter in Peter's actions is quite clear. And Paul utilizes this imperfect tense of three key Greek verbs to make the point. There's a, certain, there's a certain way of describing continuous action in the past or habitual action in the past or the beginning of an habitual action in the past. And Paul uses a particular tense of three Greek words to indicate that. So when Paul says that Peter would eat with the Gentiles, he uses this tense of the Greek verb in order to describe Peter's typical practice. It's not just that he was eating with the Gentiles on this occasion. It's that he commonly did this. That's what the tense of the verb, it's an imperfect tense in the Greek. And in this instance, it's indicating this was his customary practice. Whenever he was with Gentiles, this is what he did. He had no problem with it. As the linguistic key of the Greek New Testament correctly observes, the imperfect tense here expresses the habitual action of the past. He used to eat regularly with Gentiles. That's the implication. In fact, we could assume that this practice first began when Peter visited the house of Cornelius, remember? The Gentile Roman centurion. And he was later accused by his Jewish brethren of doing something wrong because he'd eaten with Gentiles because they were considered to be unclean. You could eat with them if they became Jews first and got clean, right? But you, but <laughs> you can't just go eat with Gentiles who hadn't done that. And so these Judaizers, well, they're not clean. You can't eat with them. They haven't been circumcised. Would be, still be their mentality. Paul, Paul knew better and Peter knew better. Because we're told in Acts 11 uh, that when he was accused of having done this, uh, Peter responded by telling them the story of how God had shown him in a vision, the same vision, actually repeated three times, that he should no longer call any man common or unclean. And that's why he felt like he could go to Cornelius' house and stay there, which would mean eat there with Cornelius and his family. Uh, Peter told them how he visited Cornelius' household and how they were all converted and had received the gospel even as they had received it in, as Jewish believers in Jerusalem. 
In fact, the account in Acts 10, where it, you know, we have the account in Acts 10, and then we have the repetition of the account later by Peter in Acts 11. But in, in Acts 10, where the original account is given, uh, we're, we're told that they, in verse 48, that they'd asked Peter to stay for a few days after, after they come to accept Christ and he preached the gospel to them. And he apparently did that, and that led to the aforementioned accusation. People said, why are you stay, staying at this guy's house? But the point of rehearsing all that for you is simply to demonstrate that Peter knew full well that there was nothing wrong at all with eating with Gentiles. He'd had a vision from God about it that told him there was nothing wrong with it, and he'd begun to do this, and apparently it continued this practice up until this particular time in Antioch, where he was continuing the practice until some Judaizers came along, some heretics came along, and he got scared. He had adopted a practice of treating Gentiles as though they were full brethren in Christ and there was no difference between them and him as a Jew. He had done this frequently and without regret. But getting back to the verse before us, when Paul then speaks of the way Peter quit eating with the Gentiles, he again makes use of this imperfect tense that I spoke of when he says that Peter withdrew and separated himself, those two verbs. He went, in other words, from commonly, typically eating with them to once these Judaizers came, his practice completely changed. Instead of eating regularly with the Gentiles, he ate regularly only with these Jews. That's the idea. He withdrew and made that his new practice while he was in Antioch of withdrawing and separating himself from these Gentile believers. Now think of how destructive that, that was. This, this time Peter or Paul is employing what Greek grammarians call the inceptive use of this imperfect tense. It described the beginning of a, a new habit of action. So it wasn't just Peter one. In ate once, maybe twice with the Gentiles. No, he commonly did that. And it wasn't that he just separated himself once on one occasion from the Gentiles. No, he started doing it all the time. Or at least for a period of time until Paul saw what was going on and put a stop to it by the grace of God. So it describes the inception or beginning of this sort of habitual action. So Paul is making it very clear what was going on. Peter's practice had changed from one thing to another. As J.B. Lightfoot helpfully again puts it, the words describe forcibly the cautious withdrawal of a timid person who shrinks from observation. <laughs> you don't usually think of Peter as timid. There's one thing we knew about Peter before this point. It's that Peter was a brave man. He was the guy who took out a sword and attacked a Roman cohort, cohort when they came to arrest Jesus. Nobody else did that. This is a gutsy guy. Not on this occasion. Even the bravest of men become, become fearful sometimes. Or let's put it this way. Even the bravest of men lose the ability to act in spite of their fears sometimes. 
Because being brave doesn't mean you're not afraid. It means you do what you should do even though you're afraid, right? And on this case, in this case, Peter, Peter didn't do that. It's really hard to imagine that Peter could do something like this. That he could visibly distance himself from the Gentiles and treat them as though they were unclean. Somehow less acceptable than he was as a Jew. When he knew better. Of all people, Peter knew better. He'd gotten special revelation to that effect. Even. What, what, did, the, what did he do then? He insulted them publicly. And no doubt hurt them deeply in the process. Think about it. this. Was, everybody saw this. Paul says he did it out of fear. He's, he explicitly says that Peter did this because he was fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, Paul doesn't say anything about the reason for Peter's fear. Perhaps Peter was tired of being persecuted and he, his weakness got the better of him. Perhaps Peter was afraid of the division that would be caused in the church back home in Jerusalem or something. Or We can't be certain just why he was fearful. We just know that Paul saw enough of Peter's actions to see the hypocrisy involved in them and to ascertain with certainty that Peter was sinfully acting out of fear. There was no doubt about it, right? But that was just the tip of the iceberg because since Peter's actions were public, they had led others astray as well. And Paul goes on to explain that. This is why we know they were public actions. It wasn't just a few Gentiles he'd withdraw from, saw it. Look what it says in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. It's just getting worse and worse. Now, when referring to the rest of the Jews, Paul has to mean the rest of the Christian Jews who are in the church in Antioch. Right? So he's telling us that Peter's actions led to a division in the church in which the Jewish believers stopped eating with the Gentile believers. They were following Peter's horrific example. This might also mean that they had stopped sharing the Lord's Supper with them as well because that would involve eating with them too, wouldn't it? Now, Paul doesn't go on to explain that, but if Seems a possible, at least even a probable implication. Apparently, Paul was the only Jewish believer who stood firm. Because he says the rest of the Jews, except for me and Barnabas, no, even Barnabas. Paul was the only one, apparently, who didn't give in, who didn't cave. And we can see by that example, that sometimes standing for the gospel can be a very lonely business. Once in a while, you are the only one. It's even harder to be brave in times like that. Again, the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament is helpful when it says that the basic meaning of the word here for played the hypocrite means to answer from under and refers to actors who spoke under a mask in playing a part. These actors hid their true selves 
behind the role they were playing. The word indicates the concealing of wrong feelings, character, etc., under the pretense of better ones. That's the word translated played the hypocrite that was used here to say, now, they played the hypocrite with Peter. All the rest of the Jews and Barnabas did this. It's only found here in the New Testament, this particular word. It, it means to join in pretending or playing a part. And that's why it came to be used figuratively in the sense of speaking or acting falsely or, or joining in hypocrisy. The truly sad thing here is that Peter, when hiding his own true feelings and views, was actually hiding feelings and views that were right and that he knew to be right. The play acting he was doing was acting like he agreed with the Judaizers when he didn't. He knew it was right. He had taken a stand for what was right before, all the time, consistently. And then he quit. And apparently he was hiding his true feelings, what he knew to be right, because of fear of these Judaizers. But if that weren't bad enough, as we've seen the rest of the Jewish brethren were joining in with him in this pretense, and even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy, Paul says. As one pastor put it, you can almost hear Paul's voice cracking with emotion here when he says, even Barnabas, his closest friend, the most steadfast man in his life, up to that point as a believer. The guy who believed in and trusted in Paul and others didn't. The guy who was by his side through thick and thin for a long time, who administered with him for years, even him. He also betrayed the gospel. But Paul didn't join them. By God's grace, he took a stand, as he says in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. See, that's the issue to Paul. He doesn't care who you choose to eat with. <laughs> Unless who you choose to eat with and the reason you choose to eat with those people and not with others undermines the gospel. Then he cares a great deal. And that's what was going on here. He says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, notice he says, he's reaffirming this was Peter's habitual action before. He commonly ate with the Gentiles and, and lived like them. Why are you now compelling the Gentiles to live as Jews? Now notice the important charge that Paul levels against Peter and these other believers, these other Jewish believers, including Barnabas. He's addressing Peter to his face and saying this to Peter, but he's saying it in front of everyone because all these other Jews are involved and because all the Gentile believers need to hear what he's saying about it, right? He wasn't just exposing hypocrisy. He was, he was exposing hypocrisy that compromised the gospel. The truth of the gospel. 
When Paul says that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, he's using another very picturesque Greek word, which is found again only here in the New Testament. It reflects a common metaphor in the Bible of a person's behavior being described as a walk. You can walk the true path, the right path, or you can walk the wrong path. And this, this word literally means to walk straight. Um, straight or perhaps upright. And then, of course, it was used figuratively of man's conduct toward God or other persons of being straightforward. I think J.B. Lightfoot gets the idea right when he says of Peter and Barnabas here that they diverge from the straight path of the gospel truth. That's what Paul's saying. And he's making no bones about it. His point is very clear. When Peter caved to the pressure from the Judaizers and acted as though the Gentiles were unclean because they had not been circumcised, he was saying by his actions that the heretics were right and that the Gentiles should have to be circumcised and become Jews before they could be accepted by God. That's what his actions were indicating. And Paul saw it as plain as day. Peter should have seen it too. So should Barnabas, of all people. So should every single Jewish believer in Antioch. And this is why Paul challenged Peter with this question that showed up his hypocrisy. If you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Why are you acting like these Judaizers are right when you know they're not? You hypocrite. Again, this is why Paul confronted Peter publicly. He said, before them all. He didn't say, let's have a little apostolic meeting behind the scenes. Let's pull Peter aside privately. And then I'll have a private talk with Barnabas. And then maybe they can go talk to some of these other Jews. And we'll sort of quietly deal with... No. This took bold public proclamation and confrontation. What Peter had done had been public. And it led many astray. So a public confrontation was not only right, it was absolutely necessary in the mind of Paul because the gospel was at stake. Sadly, too many people today are fearful of taking such action when necessary. John Stott says this in his treatment of the passage. Paul did not listen to those who may well have counseled him to be cautious and to avoid washing dirty theological linen in public. He made no attempt to hush the dispute up or arrange as we might for a private discussion from which the public or the press were excluded. The consultation in Jerusalem had been private that he talked about in verse 2. But the showdown in Antioch must be public. Peter's withdrawal from the Gentile believers had caused a public scandal and he had to be posed in public too. So Paul's opposition to Peter was both to his face, verse 11, and before them all, verse 14. It was just the kind of open, head-on collision which the church would seek at any price to avoid today. I fear he's all too accurate with that assessment. Sometimes when the error is public, and when the honor of Christ or the truth of the gospel are at stake, we have to publicly confront the error. We cannot remain silent. Especially those of us in leadership, and especially when someone in leadership is the one in error, as Peter was here. 
as I said before, I, I wrote an article once that I got really condemned for having publicly confronted. I, but if you go back through the years of my blog, you'll see I've done this any number of times. I usually send, in fact, I don't know that there's an exception. There might be one. I usually, after I write it, send emails, usually repeated emails, to the guy I confronted publicly for his response. I don't, but maybe once or twice I've gotten a response back. Why do I do that? Because you're supposed to. Because it's the right thing to do. This brings us to the end of our text for this morning, but I want to conclude with a couple more points of application, if I may. First, I think we'd all do well to remember the words of Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. What caused Peter to stumble? It was the fear of man. And, and if we say, well, I have none, no such fear in me, Let's just say I don't believe you if you think. And it's not that I think you're willfully lying. I think that you're probably self-deceived. You probably think you're telling the truth. Get in a position like Peter sometime and we'll see if that's really true. Maybe you'll be Paul. Maybe you'll be Barnabas. What I'm saying is let's not think we're any better than Peter or Barnabas. Because we're really not. Neither was Paul. The only reason that Paul withstood this is by the grace of God, and he'd be the first one. If you read his letters, you know he'd be the first one to say so. It was Christ in him, the hope of glory. It wasn't anything Paul did. But we need to keep this warning always in, in our minds that the fear of man brings a snare, especially since we know that even the strongest and best Christian leaders can stumble because of the fear of man, like Peter, like Barnabas did. I mean, when you read the New Testament, if this, if this passage weren't here and somebody told you Barnabas did this, you wouldn't believe them. Or Peter did this, you would not believe them. But it happened. And if it could happen to them, it really could happen to any one of us. It can even happen without us realizing that it's happening. I think most of us perhaps could think of times, for example, that we could have shared the gospel with someone and didn't do it. And then maybe we rationalized and came up with reasons why we didn't do it later, but deep down inside we knew the real reason was the fear of man. We know, we know deep down that was it. But we just don't want to admit it because we feel ashamed. We don't even want to admit it to ourselves. but it was fear that kept us silent. If you've ever had a moment like that, don't judge Peter and Barnabas too harshly. Because the people that they were afraid of wanted to kill them. <laughs> so there's that. Secondly, we would also do well to remember here the words of Proverbs 27.6, where the first part of the verse is, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I tell you, Paul, 
was Peter's best friend on that day. He was Barnabas' best friend. He was the best friend those Jewish believers in Antioch had that day. He was a faithful friend. He knew it would wound them to confront them publicly like that. But he did it because he loved them and he wanted to help them. He did it because he loved Jesus and he loved the gospel too. But don't think that he was being mean to Peter or Barnabas or these other Jews. Because he wasn't. He was being loving. He was being a friend. Perhaps too many of us forget this and fail to correct our brothers and sisters in the Lord when we know that we should. And I'm not saying confront every little sin that you see. Love covers a multitude of sins we know as well. And, and if we were going to confront every little sin we see in one another, that is all we would ever be doing. We would have no time for anything else. And the Bible doesn't say we have to do that. But there are times when we should. We've heard an example this morning of wives that do that, right? With their husbands when they should, because they're faithful wives. Because they love their husbands, right? Sometimes these confrontations have to be public if the gospel is at stake and if the sin is public. We don't want confrontation to be public. If you go back and read Matthew 18, Jesus wants us to go to great lengths never to make private sin public unless we absolutely have to because the person, after repeated attempts, refuses to repent. It's only then that you bring it before the church and it becomes public. But if the sin is public, if the sin is an egregious sin that undermines the gospel in particular, that sin must be publicly confronted and a true friend will have the courage to do it. Even if it's another Christian that you love and respect. Who's been a friend to you even. It has to be done. Too often today we think such confrontation is a really bad thing. No, it's a good thing. What Paul did that day in Antioch was a good thing. And Peter knew it. We know Peter repented. We know Barnabas repented because we have the rest of the accounts of what they did after that. We know that they repented. We know that they ended up turning. When it's necessary, we have to do this, but we have to do it in the right way for the right reasons. As Paul will go on to write in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Too many Christians avoid a duty like this, like the plague these days, because it's hard. It's not only hard because it takes courage. It's hard because we can second-guess ourselves so easily, which we should take a good look at ourselves. We should remove the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. But we should take the speck out of the brother's eye. We should do that. We should confront when we need to. Let Paul's example encourage you this morning. It couldn't have been easy for him to confront Peter this way. He no doubt loved and respected him. There were probably days where he wished he had been had Peter's walk instead of his own. Peter tried to defend Jesus and cut off Malchus' ear. Paul had been killing Christians. 
I'm sure he had a lot of respect for Peter. But he trusted the Lord and he did what was necessary. And we have to do the same. Peter probably found it difficult to receive this. He probably felt ashamed. He must have been quite humiliated even by what happened. But maybe it would be helpful to see the fruit of Paul's action here before we leave off. Confrontations like this don't always work out well. In fact, they very frequently don't. But sometimes they do. And this happened in Peter's case. Consider, for example, Peter's later actions at the Council of Jerusalem, about which we've already read. This time I'll read in Acts 15, verse 11 through, or 7 through 11, rather. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. This is the Peter who had agreed with Paul in their first meeting in Jerusalem. This is the corrected Peter after his failure in Antioch, getting back on message. This is what he had really believed all along. And that through fear, he had compromised for a brief period in his life. Paul must have been so proud of Peter that day. Can you imagine hearing Peter stand up and say that in this council? After knowing what had happened in Antioch, he must have been thanking God and praising God for the grace that he saw in Peter's life. Peter was back on track. He probably knew it before then. Certainly knew it that day. Consider also, finally, Peter's later words of instruction in, in his second epistle. Therefore, beloved brother, 2 Peter 3, verse 14, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Here's what he thinks of Paul. He's an apostle who writes scripture. And some people distort and twist what he says. And we shouldn't do that, Peter says. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Peter's speaking as somebody who knows exactly how that happens, isn't he? Because it happened to him in Antioch. The very thing he's warning them about. Peter himself had learned the hard way just how easily we can be led away with the error of the wicked. He had seen firsthand how the gospel Paul preached could be twisted and how even he himself could succumb to the negative influence of wicked men. 
he would have us avoid such a terrible thing. He doesn't want us to fall into the same thing, at least on one occasion, he himself had fallen into. We need to trust the Lord for that, don't we? Let's pray. Holy Father, it is my great hope that taking time to go through all this history in the early church and, and what happened to these accounts will be of great value to us and help us to be strong in the faith. Part of the theme of the teaching in 1 Timothy and has been all the issue of false teaching that was going on there, and, and we want to relate that to our own day. There's lots of false teaching around us, and sometimes when we're with other Christians in a public setting and we hear false things being said, we really do need to speak up. We really do need to correct it lest we succumb to the sin that Peter succumbed to and give the impression that we agree with false and heretical things and possibly lead others astray. Forgive us for the times we may have done that as you forgave Peter and help us, like Peter, to resolve by your grace to do better. Help us instead to follow the example of Paul who, however difficult it is, and even if we seem the odd man or woman out, we seem alone to have the courage by the grace of God to speak up when we should, to share the gospel when we know we should, to correct error when we know we have the opportunity, even if, and maybe especially if, it's in a group setting, a public setting. We don't have this fear naturally, Lord. We, we can, or this uh, courage naturally. The fear is quite natural to us. We don't have this courage naturally. We need it. It comes from your Holy Spirit. So help us to rely on you, I pray. Help us to, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, to be a strong church that takes a stand as a church this way and is willing to speak the truth no matter what those in, around us may say. We ask these things for your glory and for our good. And in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Today, I'm, I'm especially grateful for your kind attention. <laughs>